Well, the song, the song won five Grammy Awards all the way back in 1970, including Song of the Year. It was number one on Billboard chart, the Billboard chart for six weeks, uh, recorded by over 50 artists, six million copies sold over time. Written by Paul Simon, sung by Art Garfunkel, became their signature song. What song am I talking about? Bridge Over Troubled Waters. So I thought we'd just sing it together if you join me. <laughs> now I figured whether you're six or you're 16 or 65, you've probably heard this song a bazillion times. But let me recite the opening lyrics to you. When you're weary, feeling small, when tears are in your eyes, I will dry them all. I'm on your side. When times get rough and friends just can't be found, like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Now, who wouldn't love to have a friend like that? Someone who would come alongside of you when times get rough. Art Garfunkel, who originally sang that song, he'd love to have a friend like that because Paul Simon has not been that kind of a friend to him. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I read a recent interview with uh, Art Garfunkel, who's now 73 years old, and he's still bitter toward Paul Simon because years ago, he met, met Simon at high school and befriended him. Paul Simon was only uh, five foot three, he's still only five foot three. And so kids were making fun of him, and Art Garfunkel became his friend, and they became this amazing singing duo. Uh, but the fame went to Paul Simon's head, according to Garfunkel. And shortly after recording Bridge Over Troubled Water, Simon broke up the act. He decided to go solo, and so the reporter was asking Garfunkel, what, what would you say to Paul Simon today? And, and Garfunkel said, how could you let that go, you jerk? Now, I read that, and I thought to myself, I hope life doesn't hit the fan for Simon anytime soon, because Garfunkel is not going to be his bridge over troubled water. All right. Question, who's your bridge over troubled water? Or, or if I could spin it around, because this is going to be the focus of our study today, whose bridge over troubled water are you when life hits the fan for them? Whose bridge over troubled water are you? We're in the second week of a four-part series called When Life Hits the Fan. This is a study of the book of Job. If you turn to Job right now in your Bibles... It's a book before the book of Psalms, and as I said last week, I hope you'll, you'll bring your Bible, you'll mark it up, so when you go back to read it on your own, you'll remember what God taught you during this series. Okay, possibly the oldest book in, in the Bible, it's the story of a guy who lost everything, lost his family, lost his possessions, lost his health. You know, life hit the fan for him. And last week, we took a look at the opening chapters of this story from the perspective of those of us for whom life has hit the fan. Now, when I say life has hit the fan, it may, it may be a small difficulty, like your, uh, your sump pump didn't work this week in the midst of all the storms. Maybe it wasn't so small a deal if your basement flooded. Or maybe a really big thing, like recently your spouse announced they want a divorce. Maybe a momentary trouble, you didn't get in the college you applied to, the college you wanted to go to, or, or it may be something that's ongoing, something chronic. You've got MS or some other debilitating disease. If, if you want to know how to face those kinds of difficulties, I'd encourage you, you know, go back and listen to last week's sermon on Job 1 to 3, or, or re-listen to it if you heard it, judging by all the feedback. Uh, you know, from our prayer team at each of our four campuses, 
as well as emails, letters I got from people this week. This, this message, the first one in the series, really struck a responsive chord. A lot of people going through painful times. But today I'm going to put the shoe, as it were, on the other foot. I'm not going to be speaking so much to those of us for whom life has hit the fan. I want to speak to, to all of us about how to help a friend, a family member for, for whom life hits the fan. You know, how can we come alongside these people? What are the right things to do? What are the wrong things that we should avoid doing? How can we be bridge, bridges over troubled water? And we're, we're going to go to school on three of Job's best buddies. But we're going to learn from their negative example how not to help a friend in need, because these guys were losers. In fact, Job refers to them in Job chapter 6. He, he describes them as dried up watering holes in the middle of the desert. And last week I told you 95% of the book of Job is poetry, because poetry is descriptive and it's emotionally moving. And this is one of those vivid pictures he paints. I mean, you're part of a camel caravan going through the desert and everybody's thirsty and getting thirstier. And someone says, because there's, there's no more water in the canteens, well, I heard that there is a, there's a water hole a few miles off the beaten path and they leave the main road and they trudge their way there and they get there dying of thirst only to discover the watering hole is dried up. Job says that's what, that's what it's like for a person for whom life has hit the fan to be let down, to be disappointed by their friends. So how can we learn by way of contrast from Job's three pathetic amigos, you know, how to be a bridge over troubled water for others. Three lessons. If you haven't taken your outline out yet, I encourage you to write down at least the three lessons. You know, if you hope to be used by God in the life of somebody else going through troubled times. Here's lesson number one. Just show up. Yeah, say that with me. Just show up. Good. I want you to turn specifically to Job chapter 2. Okay, Job chapter 2. Now, uh, we're going to be looking at Job chapters 4 to 27 today. I asked you last week to do some homework. I won't check up on you or give you a pop quiz to find out who did and who didn't. But it'll mean so much more to you if you'll take the time to read the passages ahead of time. So Job 4 through 27 is what we're going to cover today. Short chapters, less than a page apiece. But, but before we get going in those chapters, I, I want to go back to chapter 2 and read you something about Job's friends, something they did right before they started doing everything wrong. Okay, this is Job chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him, Job, and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Got to love these guys' names, right? Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite. By the way, if you're ever asked the trivia question, shortest guy in the Bible... Bildad the shoe height. Shorter than Nehemiah. Come on, work with me. Come on, come on. And then and Zophar the Namathite, the original New York Jets football fan. 
If you don't know your NFL history, forget it, okay? We're talking Hall of Fame quarterback here. So these guys, they start off on the right foot. They hear that, that Job has hit troubled times. And so they, you know, they contact each other on Facebook and they make plans. They're going to go visit Job and bring him sympathy, bring him comfort. Now stop and think about it. Nobody else was, was doing this. And yet there had to have been a lot of people who knew about Job's troubles. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, we read that Job was the greatest man in all of the ancient East. So his troubles were front page news. You can count on that. But no, nobody, what did everybody else do? They heard the news, they shrugged their shoulders, said, poor guy. Well, uh, life happens, hits the fan sometimes. But three guys, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they made plans to go visit Job. They showed up at his, at his house, they gave him a big bear hug, and then they wept together. Someone has said that the most important thing in life is just showing up. And that was true. That's what these guys did. They just showed up. Didn't say anything. Just showed up. Back when I was a college student, one of the years I was an RA on a dorm floor, and in the middle of the year, one of the guys on my floor, his younger sister, died in a tragic car accident, and so he went home for a week. And when he came back, I wanted to make sure he was, he was doing okay, so I checked in on him, and he said, you know, it was really strange, the wide variety of, of uh, consolation that came my parents' way as people stopped by our house. Most people felt that they had to bring some word of wisdom. But he said, you know, my parents were numb. Anything that was said just kind of bounced off of them. Until one guy came to the door, my dad's best bud, and the only thing he said was, I don't know what to say. And he wrapped my dad in a bear hug and he wept. Now, now let me ask you, whose visit do you think meant the most to those grieving parents? We, we, we often mistakenly assume that our friends for whom life has hit the fan, they're waiting to get some wise word from us, something that will help them make sense of their tragedy or inspire their trust in God, suggest some possible next steps to take. But it's our physical presence that means the most. Our physical presence. You know, last week I told you about my friend, Andy, college buddy, who's going through stage four colon cancer right now, just recently came out with a book, Notes from the Valley. By the way, I mentioned two books last week. I'm going to mention them again this week, but forgot to order them. So uh, this week, forgot to order them last week. This week, they're in resource. So at any of our four campuses, you could pick up a copy of either of these, these books. In Notes from the Valley, Andy says that, that one of the things he's had to get used to is doctor appointment after doctor appointment after doctor appointment. And every time he walks into the waiting room, goes to the receptionist, she hands him a what? Clipboard, right, you've been there. And he said it's been clipboard after clipboard after clipboard after clipboard, and they all ask for the same information. You're repeating it again and again and again and again. And he says those ubiquitous clipboards, here's the message they've been sending to me. You are unknown and therefore on your own. See, we don't know anything about you. We've got to keep asking the same information. You're a nobody. You're on your own. 
And when I read that, I thought to myself, you know, it's not only people facing life-threatening illnesses who feel like they're on their own. It's anybody for whom life has hit the fan. Tough times leave us feeling terribly lonely. Whether that tough time is being out of work or dealing with an alcoholic spouse or breaking off an engagement or raising a handicapped child, whatever. You know, if you know somebody who's currently going through a tough time, count on the fact that they feel isolated, they feel alone, because that's most often the case. And so the very best thing you can do for them is just show up. But you say, yeah, I wouldn't know what to say. Just show up. But I'm not their best friend. They got other friends that are better than just show up. You know, but I, I don't have time to stop at the store and buy them a card or a gift or some flower. Just show up. But, but maybe they just want to be left to just show up. But you know, I get uneasy around people who are depressed. Just show up. What should you do? All right. Just show up. Here's the second lesson we learned from Job's three friends. Use the Bible carefully. Okay, we're now ready to take a look at some excerpts from chapters 4 through 27. Job's friends finally break their silence, and the next 24 chapters record a a back-and-forth dialogue between each of these friends and and Job. Now, here's the format of the dialogues. Three cycles. Okay, it's cycle number one, Eliphaz speaks, and then Job responds. Then Bildad speaks, and Job responds. Then Zophar speaks, and Job responds. End of cycle one. Cycle two, same thing. Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job. Third cycle, just a little bit different. It's Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job. When it gets to Zophar, he's like tired of verbally sparring with Job, so he throws up his hands, says, I quit, and he walks away. Okay, so before we take a closer look at what these guys said to Job, let me throw out a little disclaimer. It will be easy to conclude as we look at the the awful words that came out of their mouths that they should have just shut up. I mean, they started out so great, they just showed up. It's only when they opened their mouths that they ruined it. And so it will be tempting for all of us to conclude maybe it's best not to say anything to hurting people. Okay, just just don't say anything. Now, I I don't believe that's a very helpful conclusion because what we say, our, our words don't have to be annoying, don't have to be hurtful. Proverbs 12, verse 18 says, The tongue of the wise brings healing. You know, your words can bring healing. To somebody else. Proverbs 16, verse 24 says, Gracious words are a honeycomb. They're sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. So so don't rule out saying something to a friend whose life has hit the fan. And especially, listen, don't rule out sharing something from the Bible. Why, why, Why would anybody rule out citing the Bible? Well, we don't want to come across as super spiritual or preachy, so we avoid referring to God's word. What a mistake. King David, in Psalm 19, he describes the benefits of Scripture with these words. He says, the law of the Lord, talking about the Bible, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Isn't this exactly what people need in, in tough times? They need refreshment for their soul. They need joy for their heart. They need light for their eyes. So the caution I'm about to give you, point number two here, use the Bible carefully, is not meant to scare you away from using the Bible at all. People in tough times desperately need to hear God's word from you, especially if you're a mom or a dad, a spiritual mentor of some sort, a community group leader, the only person at work or at school who knows Jesus and reads God's word. So so the caution uh, I'm about to to give you. Don't let it scare you away from using the scripture. However, and here's the lesson we learned from Job's friends who misuse the Bible. We got to use God's book carefully. Carefully. Now, let let me explain to you how Job's three amigos misuse the Bible. Okay, there's a a theme in scripture that pops up again and again and again. Theologians uh, refer to it as the law of double retribution. The law of double retribution, I'm going to call it the LDR, okay? The the LDR has two parts. Part part number one is if you obey God, God will bless your life. Part two is if you disobey God, you're going to run into trouble. You're going to have serious problems. What does the LDR have to do with the story of Job? I mean, this is a principle that runs throughout Scripture. How does it relate to Job's story? Well, Job's buddies saw his life hitting the fan, and they concluded Job must be disobeying God. I mean, there must be some sin in Job's life that's brought all this trouble on him because the second half of the law of double retribution says if you disobey God, you're going to run into serious problems. And so so Job's buddies remind him of the LDR. Let, let, let me give you one passage, and we're going to flip to several passages, so keep your, your index finger licked, okay? We're in the book of Job, Job chapter 4, verse 7. This is Eliphaz speaking. He's going to remind Job of the LDR, verse 7. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the, right, the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, it's those who plow evil. It's those who sow trouble who reap it. At the breath of God, they perish at the blast of his anger. They are no more. You hear what Eliphaz is saying here? Job, innocent people don't suffer. You know, it's guilty people who get zapped by God. The law of double retribution, dude. Now, let me tell you the the problem with Eliphaz's interpretation of the LDR. Okay, repercussions when people obey God or disobey God, repercussions are not always immediately apparent. Did you hear that? They're not always immediately apparent. When someone obeys God, when someone honors God, they get rewarded, but not always immediately. When someone disobeys God, when someone dishonors God, they run into serious trouble, but not always immediately. Let's start with the second half of the the equation, the second half of the the LDR. When, When a person sins, are they punished for their sin as soon as they sin? Of course not. You know, we 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 look around us and see people all the time living blatantly sinful lifestyles and 
seem to be doing just fine, no troubles at all. I mean, th this is Job's hang-up with the law of double retribution. In fact, go over to chapter 21. Because he, he wants to make an observation about life. He's about to tell his friends, hey, as I look around, it's not happening the way you guys are describing it. Okay, listen to how Job describes people whom he sees sinning. What happens to them? Verse 7. Well, why do the wicked live on? I mean, the wicked grow old. They increase in power. They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not on them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows calve and don't miscarry. They send forth their children as a flock. Their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of timbrel and lyre. They make merry to the sound of the pipe. They spend their years in prosperity. They go down to the grave in peace. And yet these are the people who say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your way. Who's the Almighty that we should serve him? What should we gain by praying to him? Do you hear what Job's saying? Listen, I know people wicked, blatantly wicked people, and life's pretty cool for them. So people who sin are not always immediately punished for that fact. The same thing could be said regarding the first half of the law of double retribution. You know, our obedient God-honoring people always immediately rewarded for their good behavior? Hey, let me tell you, sometimes the lives of obedient God-honoring people, listen, hit the fan. Now, Job's buddies didn't get this. You know, Job's buddies wanted to convince him that he couldn't be living an obedient God-honoring life and have all these troubles. There had to be something wrong with him. And that's a misunderstanding, friends, of the law of double retribution. Yes, obedient, faith-filled people are rewarded, but not always immediately. Not always even in this life. And, and yes, disobedient, hold God at arm's length, people do run into serious trouble, but not always immediately, and not necessarily in this life. I mean, here's a verse that Job's friends didn't know because it was written years later by the Apostle Paul, but it would have helped them balance their theology. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Listen carefully. Paul says, for, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. So, friends, when do we get what we deserve, good or bad? Call it out. When, when does this happen? Call it out louder than that. The judgment seat of Christ, Paul says. Now, that doesn't mean that we never receive reward or punishment in this life. Sometimes we do. But the full reward, the full punishment are yet to come, which means that sometimes obedient, faithful people go through tough times in this present world, and sometimes disobedient people get away with it and flourish. This also means, and this is really important, don't miss this, if you've been living a disobedient life, and you think I'm getting away with it because nothing bad has happened, oh, you're not in a good place. You know, I... I would encourage you to do something about that disobedience today. 
Now, the best thing you can do, there, there's one who's paid for your disobedience. There, there, there's one who can assure that when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you will stand forgiven, and that's Jesus himself, because he came to the planet, Scripture teaches, in order to die on the cross to take the death our sins deserve. See, when you defy a holy God, when you unplug from the giver of life, the punishment is death, not just physical death at the end of this life, but spiritual death in the world to come, eternal separation from God. Jesus came to take the death we deserve. And if you've never surrendered your life to him, do it today because those who surrender their lives to him say, Jesus, I want you to be the savior, the king of my life. They receive full forgiveness, new life, eternal life. If you're wondering how to do that, how do you do that surrender thing? We've we got a little booklet called God's Good News. We pass them out like candy around here. You could pick up a copy at the information counter or the welcome center at any of our campuses. Surrender your life to Christ today. That's God's good news. Okay, back to the main lesson here that we're learning from Job's friends. They misused the Bible. You know, their understanding of the LDR, which is a biblical principle, got twisted. And so when we come alongside a hurting friend, we must use the Bible carefully. Now, we don't avoid using it because the Bible is incredibly helpful, as I pointed out a few moments ago. However, we must avoid casually, cavalierly quoting the Bible at people for whom life has hit the fan. Use the Bible, but use it thoughtfully. Use it gently, which brings us to a third lesson we learned from Job's buds. Number three, be empathetic. Now, empathy is the ability to put yourself in another person's shoes. You know, you, you try to imagine, you know, what the hurt, the frustration, the discouragement, the disillusionment must feel like. Job's buddies were not empathetic. You know, they remind me of a story I heard recently about a guy who was telling his buddy about all the troubles in his life. He said, I lost my job, I lost my house, lost my fiance, and every time he rolled out another detail, his friend would say, well, it could have been worse. Could have been worse. Finally, the guy telling the story, he exploded. He said, how could it possibly have been worse? His friend said, well, it could have happened to me. <laughs> Empathy's trying to imagine how it would feel if it did happen to me. You know, imagine, what, what would that feel like? Job's friends had no imagination. And, and Job, he got sick and tired of their insensitivity. At one point, you could jot down these references, chapter 16, verse 2, at one point he says, you are miserable comforters, all of you. Now, one you got to see, go over to chapter 26. I love this one. Chapter 26, verse 2, Job scolds these guys with sarcasm. You want to hear sarcasm? Oh my goodness, listen to this, it's priceless. Verse 2 of chapter 26, how you have helped the powerless. Oh, how you've saved the arm that's feeble. What advice you've offered to one without wisdom. And what great insight you've displayed. I mean, who's helped you utter these words? Whose spirit spoke from your mouth? Wow, you got to be pretty honked off to get that sarcastic. So how do you communicate empathy to those whose lives have hit the fan? Uh, let me spell it out. 
You know, something that we learn from his three amigos, three behaviors to avoid, illustrated by these buddies. If you want to be empathetic, first of all, don't be all-knowing. Okay, don't be all-knowing. Job's friends come across as if they got all the answers. I mean, they know exactly how to fix Job's problems. You ever try to do that for a friend or a spouse or one of your kids? Try to fix their problem? How's that working for you? Let let, let me give you a taste of Job's buddies' all-knowingness. And I'm just going to pick one of the guys here, Eliphaz. Okay, all three guys were guilty of this insensitive arrogance, but Eliphaz was the first guy to speak at the end of his first little speech. Listen to these words. This is chapter 5, verse 27. Eliphaz concludes his speech by saying, We have examined this, Job, and it is true. So hear it and apply it to yourself. See, Eliphaz knows exactly what Job should do. Now, all Job has to do is do it. Okay, Job, you've heard me speak. Go put it into practice. Wow. Then in the middle of his second speech, Eliphaz in chapter 15, verse 17, he says, listen to me, Job, and I'll explain to you. Let me tell you what I've seen, what the wise have declared. You read that stuff and you say, boy, is this guy full of himself or what? Interestingly, if you go over to chapter 4, you'll discover that Eliphaz attributes his all-knowingness to a dream that he's had in the middle of the night. He says, yeah, God's spoken to me. A spirit came. He gave me the information, the insight that you need, Job. Here it is. Now, let, let me say there are times, I believe there are times, when God gives people insight to other people's problems, something that will give them some direction or some consolation. They'll get a word from the Lord, so to speak. But I also believe this is, this is really dangerous in the hands of the wrong person. Because sometimes when someone says, you know, I've got a word from the Lord, it comes across overbearing, heavy-handed, as if you've got to do this because God says... Or he can raise false hopes. You know, my friend Rob Boo, I told you about Rob last week, lost his wife to cancer a few years ago. Wrote a book called When the Bottom Drops Out. That's the other book I'd recommend for you. Rob says as his wife Carol was dying, several people came to him at different times and said, you know, we've got a word from the Lord. God's going to heal Carol. She's going to be okay. She's not going to die. Carol died. So what does it do to you when you hear a word from God like that? Don't be all-knowing. Don't be an advice dispenser. Don't be a Ms. Fix-It, Mr. Fix-It. Rob said one of the things he learned from his experience is about the best thing you can say to someone who's going through troubled times is, I'm sorry. I'm just so sorry. He said now that he's experienced what it's like to be on the receiving end of consolation from people, it's changed his first response to those he meets who've just lost a job or just gone through a divorce or or whatever. Now it's, I'm sorry, or here are some other lines he says he uses, this must be awful. Or I can't imagine how difficult this must be. Or he says, I just say, ugh. You want to be empathetic, then don't be all-knowing. Second, don't be judgmental. 
Now, keep in mind that Job's buddies, they had a twisted view of the law of retribution. They were sure that Job must have done something sinful because God was punishing him with hard times. I mean, if you read through the, the, the speeches of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar in chapters 4 through 27, which I hope you'll do if you haven't already, they accuse Job of everything under the sun. Now, you've got to understand, as you're reading these speeches, they have absolutely no evidence that Job has done any of the things they accuse him of. They're just taking shots in the dark. You know, they're playing their own game of battleship. You ever play that game? You know, you each got your own board and you lay out your, you know, your opponent can't see your ships and you can't see their ships and you start calling out coordinates, C-10, A-5, B-8. And if you land on one of their ships, they got to say, I'm hit, I'm hit. Well, Job's friends keep calling out sins, but Job never says, I'm hit. Oh, does this rile them? You know, I had to laugh out loud when I read one sweeping accusation from Zophar. I mean, he'd run out of specific things to hurl at Job, so he just lobbed this general, this generic accusation. Job 11, verse 6, Zophar says, Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. You talk about a buckshot approach. Job, you're even guilty of stuff God can't remember. Sounds like kids on a playground, doesn't it? You want to be empathetic with someone whose life has hit the fan, then don't be judgmental. Don't spend all your time trying to help them see where they screwed up. Now, let, let me quickly bring some balance to this, okay? You know, it may be necessary on occasion to help a friend understand what they might have contributed to their own predicament. I mean, somebody's bummed out and they come to you, a friend comes to you because they just got their second DUI. At some point, you may have to have a discussion about their drinking problem, right? You know, if a girl, you know, is brokenhearted because her boyfriend just moved out on her, at some point you might have to say, you know, this brokenhearted is what God wants to spare you from. That's why he says in his word that a sexual relationship is to be reserved for a lifetime commitment in marriage. You may have to have this discussion. If someone has lost three jobs in the last six months, you, you might have to ask, you know, is there a reason why you think you keep losing a job? However, however, don't always assume that somebody's problems are their own fault. Because Job's problems were not his fault. And furthermore, even if somebody is at fault... I mean, even if they've brought their trouble on themselves, don't lead with that. Don't make that the major issue. Start out with some empathy. Use one of Rob Boo's lines. I'm so sorry. This must be awful. I can't imagine how difficult this is. Or just, here's my favorite, ugh. Ugh. Isn't that how we want to be treated when, when life hits the fan for us, even in those situations where we know we're partly to blame? I'll just speak for myself. When I get myself in deep weeds and I know it's partly my, my own fault, it still feels really good when somebody looks at me and says, I'm so sorry. Third, don't be defensive. 
Now, here's an interesting thing about the defensiveness of Job's buddies. When Job pushed back against what they said, they weren't so much defensive for themselves. That's, that's what you'd think. They were defensive for God. See, they got really riled up when Job accused God of treating him unfairly. Uh, oh, excuse me, did you say God's unfair? Come on, Job, you whiner, you want to get hit with lightning? You don't say God's unfair. You don't say those things, Job. See, jo Job's buddies saw themselves as defenders of God's honor, as, as if God couldn't take care of himself, right? You know, after one of Job's painful outbursts, Bildad rebuts him with these words. This is Job chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. He says, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? What are you saying about God, Job? Zophar says something similar over in chapter 11, beginning at verse 2. He says, are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? I mean, you're saying to God, my beliefs are flawless and I'm pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you. See, Zophar can't understand why God doesn't let Job have it for some of the things Job's been saying about God. So if God is not going to defend himself, then Zophar's going to defend God on God's behalf. Isn't God lucky to have a guy like Zophar on his team? Now, let, let, let me warn you about something when you try to console a friend whose life has hit the fan. They may be pretty upset with God. And so they, they may say things about God that are untrue or whiny or offensive. So don't feel like you have to correct, correct them on God's behalf. Again, yes, there are times when it may be necessary to push back a little bit. Do it gently. But, but most often people, people are just confused. They're frustrated. They're blowing off steam. If you want them to have a proper view of God, rather than rebuking them for their off-the-wall comments, try praying for them. You know, try praying with them. Nothing will restore to them an accurate view of who God is, quite like being brought into the presence of God through someone's prayer. I would tell you a closing story here, another story from my friend Annie McQuitty, who wrote Notes from the Valley. This guy with stage four colon cancer, it has to do with prayer. It has to do with how healing it is when people pray for you. Uh, Andy, as I told you last week, he's the pastor of a church like Christ Community Church. And so his church provided him with a pager. And, and they encouraged the congregation, we want you to pray for Pastor Andy. And every time you pray for him, we, we want you to beep him. Okay, now he's not going to pick up. He's not going to return your call. We're not asking him to do that. We just want him to know when people are praying for him. So Andy started wearing this pager and all day long, beep, 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 you know, and he put it aside in the evening and he'd hear those beeps and he said it was better than a massage at a spa to know that people were praying for him every time it went off. But he said on one occasion he was in the waiting room of a chemo lab. It was filled with people. His pager goes off, it beeps. He just kind of smiles. A little while later, it beeps again, and he nods his head, looks at people, smiles. 
Third time it happens, this real rough biker-looking guy across the room says, going to get that dude? And Andy said, well, you know, let me explain to you. They're, they're not expecting me to pick up, but people are praying for, for me. And he said, you know, a few weeks ago I stood in front of my congregation at my church and I said, would you do me a favor? He said, whenever you pray for me and you send me one of those, those beeps, would you also pray for the people who are with me? So whether I'm with doctors or fellow patients or a family member, would you pray for them as well? So he looked at the biker and he said, so you're getting prayed for right now too. The guy said, well, that's really cool. Now, before I read you the closing paragraph of this story, it's great. Let me just in, invite our worship bands out on the stages of our four campuses because we're, we're going to sing a concluding song in just a moment that reminds us that in our difficult times, Christ is enough. Christ is the best friend we can have. And as we sing, we're going to bring our gifts, our offerings to God. How fitting on Father's Day to bring God a portion of our income that says, you've been a great father to me. I love you. Here's my gift. Okay, now let me read to you the conclusion of his story. And he says, I, I noticed that it had become quiet in the waiting room. I looked around to see 25 other sets of eyes fastened hopefully on me. Yep, you too, I told them. You all just got prayed for. <laughs> you could detect a palpable sense of relief when I made that declaration. See, everybody in the valley covets prayer, but not everybody receives it. And that's why they're especially grateful when they do. I know I am. So you, you want to be a bridge over troubled water for others? Number one, just show up. You're going to have an opportunity before the week is out. You're going to hear of someone for whom life has hit the fan. You're going to have the opportunity to just show up. Show up at their desk at work. Show up at the front door in the neighborhood. Just show up. No, number two, use God's word, but use it carefully. Number three, be empathetic. Not all-knowing, not judgmental, not defensive. Be empathetic. And the best way you can do that is to pray people into the presence of God. doesn't matter how profound or how long the prayer is. In fact, the shorter the better sometimes for people in troubled times. Just bring them into the presence of God with your prayer.